Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I am the host of the Locked On MLB podcast, and I am also the creator of Bold Durham Minute, which is part of the Movie by Minute world. And on today's episode, we're going to be breaking down minute number 126, which begins with Millie and Al telling their daughter that they have to find ways to fall in love all over again. And Teresa Wright realizing that, oh no, marriage is harder than I thought it was going to be. And ends with Fred entering Butch's bar asking if Al is there to see him. Well, in the course of trying to put together my minutes for this podcast, I was looking up people who have written about the movie online. And I stumbled across, first of all, a wonderful site called Another Old Movie Blog, which is a great name for one, wonderfully self-effacing. My guest today wrote a quite an in-depth and very thoughtful breakdown of the movie and she has written several books and several essays of moviedom including uh, Anne Blythe actress singer star Hollywood fights fascism and movies in our time Hollywood mirrors and mimics the 20th century which features the aforementioned essay about the best years of our lives I asked her to be part of the podcast and she very graciously said yes so welcome to the podcast Jacqueline T Lynch thanks for coming aboard Thanks very much, Sully. I'm very happy to be here. So you, I'm going to put a link to the best years of our lives post that you wrote for another old movie blog, but you wrote a really terrific piece about its placement in American history, this movie. We're basically seeing the beginning of the baby boom in this movie, but it's really an open-ended and not happy ending Hollywood film, which is one of the reasons why I really think this is an amazing film and why I think it's a very daring film to make. Why do you tell people what you found so interesting about the film and why you're compelled to write about it and how it mirrors our culture? Well, it's, as you say, it is daring in many ways, mainly because it shows these people very frankly. We have the returning veterans it does not necessarily show them as heroes, but as flawed people. It shows the families they've come home to, which are also flawed. They are. They try to be supportive. They fail in many ways. And it's a very frank look at what the situation was in 1946, which is fascinating. And just before this, just before the war ended, you still had movies that were exhorting you to look at the world through rose-colored glasses and to to buy the war bonds and to do your rationing and do your bit and everything will be okay in the end. But when the war ends, those messages stop almost immediately. And suddenly we're in this other world, this very otherworldly place where we're saying to ourselves, how did we get here? And this movie is one of the first to very frankly deal with that. And yet it does so in such a tender and touching way. I think you made a couple of great points, both what you said here and what you wrote, 
was that a lot of the things that they they dealt with they didn't do it in a, in a ham-fisty way that they wasn't in a sort of hit you over the headway it was just sort of seeing the differences seeing the unease which is i think a a through line in this film is how uncomfortable everybody is. Everyone seems uncomfortable in their own skin. You have the Harold Russell dealing with the loss of his hands. You have Dana Andrews is dealing with what is clearly PTSD. And the one who seems to be the happiest and most stable is the Frederick March, who in, in one of the scenes we're talking about today, just seems uncomfortable in his own house and around his own children. You wrote something in here. I've watched this film beginning to end probably four or five times. And you pointed out something that I never noticed. And I'm just going to read part of what you wrote here, which is the central characters are too preoccupied with jobs and fitting into their families and fitting into their civilian clothes to care about the new geopolitical realities. Rob, the son refers to the recent enemy as Japanese with a delicacy that eludes his veteran father who persists on referring to them as Japs. And that observation you made in there immediately was like, of course, of course. <laughs> the son, and and that, that's a very subtle thing in his relationship with his son who he doesn't know. He yeah. doesn't, he, he left, when he left, his son was a boy. Now he's a man who's developing his own thoughts and those thoughts were developed without his being there. And so he has a very real disconnect with his son. But I never, you made that observation and the minute, that was what was like, oh, of course, <laughs> of course the son sees him as Japanese because it's more of like he's seeing them from the point of view as an outsider, not as Parch's character yeah. who was in a war with them. I just I loved that that very notion that the, this is how uncomfortable it is that even things that are under the surface really and is even effective. at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Even at the beginning, when he comes home and he gives his son these war treasures he's found, and the, the, the boy clearly doesn't know what to do with them. Yeah. He ends up when he takes them to his room at the end of the evening, says, Thanks for these things dad <laughs> you know, he really doesn't he doesn't know what to do with them that but that also shows there's an element that and for me i i almost always refer to the characters by the actors names because sometimes oh, that's, that, that, that's fine. So it, also because it's, there's frederick march and a character named fred so sometimes that sloshes in my brain a little bit frederick march still sees him as a little boy who wants to be playing with toy soldiers and cowboys and indians and everything that they would have been doing then when probably when he left who probably would have jumped out of his skin at the thought of having an actual sword or an actual th a yeah. weapon of war when this is not who the boy has grown into. And to me, especially as myself, I'm a father of teenage boys who are I'm dealing with the fact that they are no longer little kids who just want to play with their Legos and their stuffed animals anymore. <laughs> And feeling that I would lose those middle years, that sort of that transition period. Oh, I mean, it must have been shocking for the, oh, for that whole generation. They, it's something that they could never get back. Right. Exactly. And he's seeing, of course, with the scene we're talking about when Teresa Wright is made her very proud declaration that she's going to, I'm going to break that marriage up, which is... Uh, such yeah. a you know, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Back in 1959, 
Teresa Wright participated in a Columbia University oral history project where she talked about her movie roles. And she talked about that scene in Best Years. Mm-hmm. And it made her very uncomfortable. She didn't, she thought it was necessary to the movie and, and she didn't mind that it was in the movie. But it made her, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it made her very uncomfortable because here she was playing a young woman who was clearly very decent, a very noble sort of person, very empathetic towards others. We've seen that scene with Fred in her bed is just a, a marvelous scene. Mm-hmm. She's responsible, she's mature, but she has this, this almost soap opera outbreak of I'm going to bust up this marriage. And she felt that what a nasty thing to say. What a nasty thing to do. She didn't quite know how to think about that. It made her very uncomfortable to play that that scene. And it is a, a, it's a wonderful scene because it it flows right into the next scene with Fred and her father. Mm-hmm. There's just so many wonderful points. And the thing I love about this movie and William Wyler I think really it was one of the best movies ever made, maybe maybe the best, is because it tells the story on two levels. One, the emotional level, and two, in a technical level. It's technically proficient. Yes. We have the scene where she's discussing with her with her parents, I want to break this marriage up. And it's a totally, I think she thinks she's being noble because she wants to save Fred. Right. But she's... She's really doing it out of an emotional, selfish outburst. She's just angry and she wants, she really does kind of, whether she wants to admit it to herself, she really wants Fred for herself at this point. To say this openly to her parents is really a shocking thing, but he covers for that. He explains that in the next scene saying, we tell each other things. Right. I think that I 100% agree with everything you're saying. And I think that this goes a little bit to what we're referring to Frederick March's son, he went through this going from a kid to being an adolescent and being a late teen without him watching. Well, Teresa Wright has developed into a woman and without his influence either, without with him away. And this is one of those things that a young adult who thinks they know everything, who think they've experienced everything and <laughs> think they're being noble when in reality they're being childish. It's why our leaders are not freshmen in college, because freshmen in college think they know everything, think they're mature people. But in reality, they're still reacting to the world as a child. She thinks she's doing a noble, mature, strong thing when she's really throwing a Molotov cocktail at a marriage. No matter how bad that marriage is, it's not her responsibility to be the crowbar, no matter how much she feels about it. But we see, and what's so skillful about it is that we see that element that she thinks she knows everything and thinks that she's smarter than the previous generation. And that's when Myrna Loy and Frederick March basically put her right back in her place going like, no, no, we've been there. We know (laughs) we have experienced this. And that's really the best way to do it. I mean, it's one thing to stand there and say, no, you don't. You're, You're wrong, young lady. Go to your room. It's quite another thing to say, your father and I have fought and screwed up many times. How many times? I mean, that's kind of a shocking thing to say to to uh, to in front of their daughter to say to her husband, how many times have I told you that I hated you? And 
and believed it in my heart. Yeah. And how many times have you said we were all washed up? How many times, I love this line, how many times have we had to fall in love all over again? And this kind of reprises at the very end of the film when Dane Andrews says to her, we're going to have to work and get kicked around. Mm-hmm. It's it's a wonderful dovetailing of the same theme. And then at the end of that scene where they're yelling at you when she, she, her mother takes her in her arms and she says, I'm sorry, mom. We see that shot of her father down the hallway late at night in his bathroom, bathrobe smoking. And it looks like you can see he's not a dictatorial father. He's worried sick. And he's trying to figure out how to get her out of this awful mess. It's a wonderful scene. I love that shot, that whole just being late at night and pacing the hallway in his bathroom. Well, there's there's two things. I'm so glad you brought that shot up because I have that shot in my notes here. There's two things that happen there. Like right before that shot, basically Teresa Wright has that realization that, oh, you've gone through this too, which is kind of the part of the theme of this film in a nutshell of there is no happily ever after the soldiers didn't come back heroes and be happily ever after and this perfect marriage that she's sort of put on a pedestal is no they've had to work at it they've had their ups and downs and they've had their fights and this is even a perfect marriage goes through that but she finds comfort in her mother's arms she hugs Myrna Loy, Myrna Loy comforts her. Frederick Mark doesn't know what the hell to do. He, this is, he is, he is completely powerless at this point. He's no longer on the ground in the war where there's a certain amount of command he could do. And he walks out. He's alone, like you said. It's dark. There's smoke. So it's, it's, it, it's unclear. And, but that's the same hallway that we see towards the beginning of the film when he first walks in. <laughs> yeah. Which is the scene which I say, if you don't cry in that scene, it's because you're a terrible person. And the scene where he he looks down the hallway, they see each other, and there's that extra beat as if they're both saying, is this real? This is real. Like, they're savoring that moment. And so now he's back in that hallway where he comes back triumphantly. He's back with his family. Everything's wonderful. But now he's by himself. It's dark. It's smoky, he's confused, and he's lost control. And so the two scenes that take place in that hallway, one is the triumphant paterfamilias is back, and the other is the completely befuddled man does is losing control. Yeah. And it's it a is, wonderful it's a great, bookend. Weiler does this throughout. He's so proficient about picking up the threads and not losing them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes to really appreciate his genius, you have to watch a movie several times oh, yeah. to see all these little things he's put in there. Yeah, and, and that he does it in a way, I love his method of doing it where it isn't, it's not a show off moment. You know, it's not, no. a, it's not a look at, there's so many things in this film, in Robin Holiday, in Mrs. Miniver, and, and all of his best movies that are brilliant technically, visually. Obviously, I think the cinematography in this film is overwhelmingly wonderful without being show-off. And to oh, me- Oh, Greg Tolland, he was, oh, he was amazing. He was incredible. And obviously we all know he shot Citizen Kane and The Grapes of Wrath and all these films which have these, a lot of times very show-offy shots. And in this one, it's just, let's just, use his techniques and not be 
ostentatious. Let's just use it to tell the story in the best way possible. Just the look of the, the two hallway shots and what they mean for both of the, for his moments of his moment of triumph and his moment of he's just confused at this point. What the heck do I even do here? He had just had the scene where he was, I almost said a bad word. He was blank faced in front of his boss. So that had happened yeah. previously. So his he doesn't have a grasp of his job. He doesn't have a grasp of his daughter. His new great friend is in love with his, is creating a love triangle with his daughter. He's like, this is not. What- and we also have the hint of a possibility of alcoholism. Oh, yeah, more than it. Where he's, <laughs> so we, it does, it's not shoved down our throats, but it's like, we know he's going to, he hasn't addressed this yet. No, but it's you done know. beautifully, especially with the the tally that's kept, <laughs> where she's <Yes>. what, whatever, <laughs> like it, it's it's so great when I, I'm gonna trash a, another film from this era. I think it came out maybe the one year or, or I think it was the this best picture from the year before, which is the Lost Weekend. Which I mean, I I admire, but. It's so it has all those subtlety of a punch to the face. Yeah, it's and, a little heavy handed. And, yeah. and it, it did not age well. I'm sure at the no, time no. it did not age particularly well. I think this aged like fine wine. I think this is still a remarkable oh, yeah. film. It's funny, a, a film I just watched relatively recently and by like in the last week was the original Star is Born with Frederick March and Janet King. And I had never seen it before. I happen, and I make no apologies for this, I happen to be a fan of the Lady Gaga version that came out two or three years ago. I thought it was a a very nice, well-made movie. and But I had never seen, and I had seen the Judy Garland one, and I had seen the dreadful one with Barbara Streisand. But I had never seen the very first one, which was the first Technicolor film ever to be nominated for Best Picture. I watched it mainly because Frederick March was in it. And I'm a huge fan of his Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I, and I said, do you know what? This is one of his big movies and I'd never seen it. And so I, I watched it for the first time. And I really, really, I, I mean, I think he's, I think Frederick March is, is just great. And I, and Dorothy Parker co-wrote the script. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of funny, yeah. funny lines in that film, but he plays the alcoholic in that film. Obviously, his character gets has a huge alcohol problem, and it, of course, mm. is played with all the subtlety of a, of a volcano eruption in the film. That's a that's a giant plot point in the film, and it was interesting to watch him be the so drunk that he comes staggering into the Oscars, drunk in A Star Is Born, <laughs> and here he's probably no less of a drunk, but it's less destructive, but also you're a little worried. I mean, yeah, you give him the first night back from war. Okay, he's going to get totally plowed every night. But in front of your boss, in front of, you know, is that, is that, yeah. really, is that, yeah. is that the smart thing to do? But he's, <laughs> he's absolutely wonderful. He is. He's great. Jacqueline T. Lynch is the author of the books uh, Hollywood Fights Fascism. Also, I'm both actor, singer, star, and movies in our time, Hollywood mirrors and mimics the 20th century. All these books are available on Amazon.com. And the movies in our time features the essay on the best years of our lives, which we are going to uh, include a link to that on the Twitter handle and everything else. Thank you so much for being part 
of the Best Years podcast. This was an absolute thrill. Thank you, Sully. It's been a delight. You can find the Best Minutes podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or on the main site, thebestminutes.com. Also, join us on Facebook at Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe, and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. And chances are your favorite movie is one of the over 170 Movies by Minute podcasts available on moviesbyminutes.com. You can find the one that I did, which was Bull Durham Minute, along with so many more, and they're all terrific, and check them out. I'm this week's host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Thank you, Jacqueline Lynch, and join us for the next episode of the Best Minutes podcast. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.